0: There are people who are just solely focused on calories and it's is—it's not the calories don't matter. It's that when we're talking about compressing a feeding window, there are things that are going on physiologically when you have 16 hours out of the day when you're not eating. 16 hours out of the day where you're going to have changes in fluctuating insulin levels. We know when insulin levels are low. There's a lot more to it than that. I'm just saying that if you understand the physiology of What's going on in the body in an unfed state for a longer period of time? Autophagy, which is this upregulation of getting rid of disease and disordered cells, but kind of looking at is there are a lot of benefits, reductions in inflammation, things like that. There's a whole lot more to intermittent fasting than what we're talking about in this context.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So, I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So, please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you are about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia is a nurse practitioner author of the best-selling book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. She's a two-time TEDx speaker with her second talk having more than 14 million views and the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast. With over 20 years' experience in health and wellness, Cynthia is a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and women's health and has been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, The Megyn Kelly Show, and more. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting and overall holistic health and wellness so they feel empowered to live their most optimal lives. Today on the show, we discuss the biggest intermittent fasting mistakes people make, how Cynthia's journey has helped her gain compassion for her clients, why fasting won't fix all of your problems, things you can do to take your health to the next level, how to fast correctly, why fasting could lead to greater fat loss results, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Cynthia Thurlow to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Cynthia, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to the conversation.
1: Likewise, I'd love to just get right into it. And I'd love to know you've worked with a lot of people over the years regarding intermittent fasting. This is something that you're incredibly passionate about. What are some of the blind spots you think that people often aren't aware of when they're starting a fasting transformation that you really think they should pay attention to?
0: Yeah, it's such a great question. I, I would say first and foremost, there is this thought process that if a little bit of fasting is good, then more is better. And in many instances, I see women in particular, that's really who I focus on, who are over fasting, under fueling or under nourishing their bodies, and over exercising. And so, I affectionately refer to it as the triad and it's this kind of mentality. I mean, the toxic diet industry in many ways has really done us a disservice as a country and as, you know, individuals that work in the health and wellness space, because when we latch onto one strategy that has worked effectively and worked well for many other individuals, we make the assumption it's going to be equally efficacious for us. And so there's always that bit of caution that, if people are not eating enough in their feeding window, and by that, I mean one gram per pound of ideal body weight in terms of protein, making sure they're eating the right types of fats, ensuring that they're eating the right types of carbohydrates, that they're not over-exercising, And I'm sure you see that. I see women that are doing CrossFit and Orange Theory Fitness six days a week, and they're wondering why they're weight loss resistant, even though they're intermittent fasting and they have these really tight feeding windows. And so it's helping people understand that the role of hormesis or hermetic stress is really dependent on, you know, is your body in a position where it can be optimized from a stress perspective? Because Hormetic stress is beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. And what I see is a lot of people like forcing fasting or forcing certain strategies. So I would say that's the most common thing that I see. I would say that it's also very common to see individuals who are weight loss resistant, who want intermittent fasting to work for them and they don't even sleep well. Like they don't even sleep five or six hours a night. And they just keep thinking if they can just keep adding more fasting that somehow that's magically going to rectify their poor quality sleep. So for me, that's really a lot of my focus now is helping people understand the, the stop the over fasting, stop the over exercising, make sure you're nourishing your body. You know, fasting is not designed to leave us feeling depleted and miserable. And there's this concept of white knuckling fasting that I see where you know, I see it every day. I see it across social media. It's in my DMs. It's in our emails. And my team and I are filling these questions. And I'm like, listen, if intermittent fasting is not working for you, it's okay. It might not be working for you right now. It may just work better for you when you're not, not sleeping through the night or not going through a divorce or you're, you know, going in a period of your life, where you're doing a lot of travel. And so those are the most common things I see. That women are not fully realizing because they're so fixated on their relationship with the scale. They're so fixated on that number and it is what governs their confidence in many instances. I'm not suggesting it's correct, but they're so fixated on that number. It governs their perception of themselves. And I think that is frightening for me. You know, this kind of toxic diet mentality that's been driven into so many of us that it's not healthy and it's not a long-term strategy if if you are so fixated on the number on the scale and i always say the scale's a liar it's not always a reflection of your health it can be just one metric that we can objectively look at but it is not the whole metric it is not the whole person it is not the whole reflection of that individual's progress from you know where they started from
1: Diet tribes have definitely gotten in the way of people achieving optimal health. I mean, I feel like there's the carnivore tribe, there's vegans, there's paleos. And I I think now like there's the fasting tribe too. And I think that the sad thing is, is that I've always seen fasting, intermittent fasting as a tool. Like, you know, if you can, if you can use it to your advantage, great. If it works for your schedule, great. If not, and you can still, you know, meet your caloric needs in in another way and you're reaching your goals, like that's, that's amazing. And you got to continue to do that. But now I think there's this idea that floats around that floats around that in order to be healthy, you have to be fasting, you have to be intermittent fasting, or you're not healthy. And I think it deters people from focusing on like the important things, exercise, proper nutrition, sleep, hydration, and they're trying to figure out the fasting thing first. What are your thoughts on that?
0: No, I 100% agree with you. And in fact, I was saying to a group this morning that... Before you think about supplements, before you think about really long fasts, because we were speaking in the context of three and five day fasts, I said, if your nutrition isn't dialed in, if you're not sleeping through the night, if you are uh, still doing chronic cardio and you're not doing any strength training, you've got work you need to do. Like instead of focusing on fasting or assuming that fasting is going to outmaneuver your garbage diet, and your lack of physical activity, and your toxic thoughts, and your poor quality sleep, it won't. And I think that we have to have these frank conversations because I think the message in the fasting space in many instances is that fasting is a panacea for everything. I'm not suggesting that everyone that's watching or listening wouldn't benefit from eating less often because let's be frank. (laughs) If you look at the statistics, most Americans eat too frequently and they eat too much. But in the context of this conversation, I think we have to be real and just say that fasting doesn't work for everyone. And certainly, you know, I'm known for intermittent fasting, but I would tell you that I do less extensive fasts, long fasts. You know, I just got back from vacation with my family and I wanted to eat two meals a day with my kids and my husband. And so I ate a really big breakfast and then I would eat dinner. And in between, I exercised and swam and snorkeled and did all these other things. And so many people have gotten to a point where they are so uncomfortable changing their habits. So they've gotten into a fasting regimen and they just don't want to eat more than one or two meals a day. And I I remind them that if you're only eating one meal a day, unless you're a magical unicorn, and I'm probably sure there are a few of those out there. Most people can't get all their protein macros into one meal. I certainly can't, but I encourage people to experiment with being flexible. Like, isn't that one of the main tenets of intermittent fasting is it's designed to be flexible, meaning you don't have to be rigid. And I just, I find that in the health and wellness industry, that once people find something that works really well for them, they get rigidly dogmatic and they're not willing to entertain the possibility that there might be other ways to embrace their health and wellness programs.
1: Yeah. And I think that one of the things that gets in people's way, no matter if they're trying to get into intermittent fasting, no matter if they're trying to just transform their nutrition altogether, no matter if they're trying to get on a healthy workout regimen is like their ability to manage things at home, to manage things between their ears, to manage the stress, to manage the, the trauma. I know I've heard you say something like, you think you're gonna be, you might be in therapy for the rest of your life because you know, you're constantly wanting to evolve and heal and that you're also like just super lucky to be, you know, where you are and that you came out and you didn't fall into like any crazy you know depths of despair given what you went through. How has your own healing journey with stress, trauma, et cetera, how has that helped you better understand? your clients, and not only your clients, but the importance of their understanding of how stress impacts their health?
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. I think it's only probably been in the last four years or five years that I'm really, really aware of how, as a personal example, the trauma that I grew up in with an alcoholic parent and a narcissistic parent and a lot of emotional and physical abuse, my way of navigating my earlier years my young adult years was really being very achievement oriented so that was that was how i kind of worked through navigating the lack of ability to regulate my emotions and to be able to properly process emotions because you know as a survival mechanism in my world i survived by achieving And so that was kind of how I navigated, um, you know, as a teenager, young adult, um, married a really great guy, thank goodness. And, you know, kind of threw me into many years of recognizing that some of the things I did maybe weren't, they weren't unhealthy, but maybe they weren't malad, they were particularly maladaptive, meaning I'll give you an example. So years ago when I was dating, if I ended a relationship, it was like, it was over, and that's just, when I say over, there was no more communication. There was no indecisiveness. It was done. And and I was like that, not just in my romantic relationships, but also relationships with peers. Like if it was over, it was done. And I recognize that's a trauma response because it was too painful for me to process those emotions. And so fast forward into, um, you know, almost five years ago when I got sick. Uh, kind of reemerged that I had more work I needed to do. And I always say the greatest gift and blessing I have is that I grew up the way I did because it has always allowed me to have a degree of empathy and compassion. And I think it's no surprise that I ended up in healthcare first as a nurse, later as a nurse practitioner, because serving others was a way of healing myself. I think if you speak to a lot of healthcare practitioners, they would probably give you similar reasons for why they they went into um, a, a, an occupation of service, whether it's a teacher, whether you know, you're a healthcare practitioner, it's a way that you heal yourself. And so I think that my own experiences gave me not only a degree of empathy that was far beyond my peers, but one of the greatest gifts I have is my ability to connect with people. And I think it's because I'm first an introvert, so I'm very observant of patterns and behaviors But I also think it has a lot to do with the fact that because of the way I grew up, one of the ways that I was able to kind of subjugate what I was experiencing was focusing on others. And so I think on a lot of different levels, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for the fact that I had those experiences. So I never, I never view it as like, oh, I feel sorry for myself. It's never that it's I'm so grateful that those experiences made me who I am because I don't think if I had, for me personally, if I had had a really nurturing, loving, perfect beaver cleaver existence as a child, I don't know if I would have had the trajectory I have now. I think part of what has driven me so hard is probably that again, that achievement orientation, not at the expense of my family. Let me be clear, but that trauma response has in some ways been a blessing. Um, And this is something that my therapist and I have talked about. Uh, And so I feel comfortable saying that, like, I'm not just speaking as an individual. I'm speaking from a professional perspective based on a lot of years of therapy, Reiki work, energy work. And I jokingly say I will always probably be in some degree of therapy because there's always something. It's almost like a scab. Like, I recognize there's still something I have to work on, like, If I get triggered, it's just giving me or allowing me to build awareness around something that I haven't dealt with. And so I look at that as if there's more work to do, there will always be work to do because I'm certainly not perfect.
1: You know, how has everything that you've just described, like, how did it Impact your your health? Like, did it impact it in a negative way at all?
0: Well, you know, if you look at the research, certainly people that have grown up in a lot of trauma, and there's this scale called adverse childhood events, and the higher your score, the more likely you are to have de- to develop um, autoimmune conditions, largely because you have this chronic overactivation of your sympathetic response. And so, for me, because I had an emotionally abusive alcoholic father, I never like understood. Um, healthy relationships between men and women because my primary relationship that I had as a child was with my dad who he himself had undergone a lot of trauma and and I very much view my father with compassion but I think when we're thinking about like how is this relevant to you know our conversation it's really helping people understand that individuals who have had a lot of trauma you know growing up and can develop autoimmune conditions. And I developed my first in my twenties and my second in my thirties and my fourth and my fourth. So it's kind of like, you know, there's been one after another and I never kind of made all those associations. So I look at it as it's just a checking in. It's an awareness with your body that, you know, things that are going on internally can manifest on a physical level. And so it's building awareness around that and then helping other individuals understand that this autoimmune conditions or conditions, depending on who you are, are really just a symbol of inner conflict that has gone on that, you know, at some point you hope to be able to kind of deal with and and move forward and through. And, and I can happily say that of my autoimmune conditions I have, they're all very stable and in remission. So it, it's always a reminder that, you know, if something pops up, it's like, okay, I need to work on my gut or I need to, you know, deal with my stress management because obviously it's not as dialed in as it needs to be in order to make sure that I keep these conditions in a kind of a quiescent manner.
1: I feel like a lot of times when people go through childhood trauma like you did in a, in this in a similar fashion and then they become achievement oriented like you just described that can play out with unhealthy patterns with health and, and fitness, um, where they're constantly looking to get better because they just are looking at their imperfections every single day in the mirror. They're constantly looking at what can they do next as far as their nutrition, because they feel that they're not good enough. I mean, they can go on and on. I can go on and on with examples. Did you ever have any battles with that, given that you are so achievement focused, given that you've had this trauma that you've had to you know work through some of this stuff where you felt that there's something that was once a good thing? started to like go down a a darker path for you?
0: The honest answer is yes and no. Yes, because I have a degree of awareness about what's important to me. Meaning for me, I live a gluten and dairy-free lifestyle because that's what works. That's what makes my body feel good. I think that I would be remiss if I didn't say that I've had moments where I've had to check in with myself to say, is any of this behavior orthorexic? Meaning... Am I getting to a point like, do I go to restaurants? Yes. Do I eat at other people's homes? Yes. Do I stress about these things? No. Um, I think physical activity has never been something that I had an unhealthy relationship with, but I do know, and my whole family knows this, like I need to exercise, not because I have an unhealthy relationship with it, but it is a stress reduction strategy for me, that it is there's a certain amount of things I need to do in the morning before I start my day. Otherwise, my mindset isn't dialed in. And so I acknowledge that there's always this awareness, whether it's about fasting, whether it's about my nutrition, whether it is about, you know, however I go about living my my interpersonal relationships. I think I have a degree of self-awareness that will give me those little check-ins. And I think if we don't as as a species, as individuals evolve, shift and change throughout our lifetime, there's a problem. I think if, you know, six or seven years ago, if you had asked me, would my intermittent fasting regimen shifted as much as it had, I would have been surprised, but I've just come to realize like the power of the N of one, which is me kind of looking at myself is that the longer I intermittent fast, the more, the more. I guess the more my perspective is really shifted, and I don't feel as much pressure to be rigid. That you know, I was just on vacation, and I had a really wide feeding window, and I had two meals a day, and I got all my protein in. But I don't feel like I have to be rigid anymore. And so that that is something I try to teach other women, and to really reinforce in the content that we put out on social media, and certainly in the book, that really helps reinforce that. Because I I think for each one of us we're constantly invited to evolve as individuals. It's whether or not we take those cues. I'll I'll give you an example. I finished graduate school in 2001, so a long time ago. And I was saying to someone the other day, if you're still practicing medicine, like you learned in the 1990s and early 2000s, something's wrong, which is to suggest like we are designed as human beings to not be rigid. Like we are designed to actually You know, say I now I know better, I do better. And so that applies to many things in life. And so I think when I reflect on, you know, the past seven years in the trajectory of my career, I've just come to realize that I've eased up and relaxed on some things and gotten more deliberate about others. But I don't think I've ever had what I would describe as an unhealthy relationship with either food or exercise. Thankfully, just because I've got a degree of awareness about my habits that probably the average person doesn't have.
1: We'll get back to like your story and your health transformation and personal insights here in a second. I want to go back to fasting for a second and tie this all together. So we've talked about how like fasting isn't going to fix all of your problems. Like you still have to do the work in these other important areas of your health for the fasting to, you know, to truly make a difference we've also touched on the importance of working on your mental health, healing your past, going to therapy if needed, trying to develop self-awareness and how that all relates to the context of of health and wellness. Being that I think a lot of the like one of the biggest mistakes that people make in the context of fact of fasting is that they think it's going to be this magic pill and that if they start fasting, that means they can just Overeat, they don't have to exercise as much. They don't pay attention to sleep, all these other things. And that fasting is going to be this magic pill that, that solves everything. Given that, do you think that it's it's extremely important for people to develop self awareness and to go to therapy and to make sure that their mental health is in check first before fasting?
0: I think that's a tough question because each one of us are individuals. And are there people who really would benefit from working on their mental health first? Absolutely. But I think it is commonly much more common to see individuals want to do the physicality piece first, because it seems easier, more tangible. I think for a lot of individuals, it is very hard, if not impossible, for them to contemplate that internal work, because that is the hardest work, right? It is the hardest work when you invest in yourself. It is the hardest work when you change habits that are not healthy, or you change a habit that is not benefiting you long-term. And I found that when I was working in clinical cardiology, that more often than not, if I talk to my patients as an example about getting more sleep, being physically active, eating less carbohydrates, eating more protein, um, managing their stress, that it was a whole lot harder for them to do that than it was for me to prescribe another pill to address their high blood pressure or their lipid issue or their diabetes. And so I think that we as a culture have conditioned patients to ask for pills that are a lifestyle that really could be mediated and better served with changing our lifestyle. But it is harder to do that. It is much harder to change lifestyle than it is just to take another pill. And unfortunately, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry and how aggressively they market to consumers, whether it is a byproduct of the traditional kind of allopathic medicine. And and let me be clear, there is absolutely a place for allopathic medicine. I'm just speaking about chronic and preventative health issues. Um, Part of my frustration working in a traditional kind of allopathic model was that we waited for people to get disease. We waited till someone had a disease before we intervened. We weren't necessarily working aggressively to prevent disease. And so I I would say that it would be probably less common for people to say, hey, I know I've got some maladaptive behaviors. I need to go to therapy, they would probably be dealing with that after the fact, maybe when they tried to make these strategic changes to lifestyle and they weren't happening effectively.
1: But I think like in the context of like mental health and self-awareness and stress, I mean, I think that like if the goal is health transformation and or weight and weight loss or longevity or whatever the whatever the person's goals are at that time i think that if they don't have a healthy relationship with themselves it can definitely get in the way of them reaching those goals like for example if your goal was to lose body fat and you have a plan you're like okay i'm going to start this plan i know what to eat i know my eating window I know all the things but when i get stressed i eat cookies all day or when i get stressed i drink a bunch of alcohol or when i get stressed i like fill in the blank then and i've seen this over the years of my career and then that person they end up they just don't see results because of their in, inability to manage stress the the thing i guess i was trying to really get at is i guess do you do you believe that people should really be certain that they have a healthy relationship with themselves um you know before or in identifying the emotional reason on why they want to achieve this this health um, outcome that they want before like going down the, the rabbit hole on it.
0: I mean, of course, I, I think that the average person, and this has been my clinical experience, you know, working with patients over 25 years, it's less common that someone is coming to me saying, hey, I don't feel comfortable dealing with my uncomfortable feelings. I want to deal with that first before I start. So, So for me, I look at it as, it would be a highly evolved individual that would be cognizant of the fact that their mindset was getting in the way of their lifestyle changes. And so this is where I think clinical psychologists, health coaches can really be instrumental in helping people not only gain awareness about their behavior, but also those feelings piece. You know, there's a clinical psychologist friend who's really amazing, uh, Dr. Joan Rosenberg. And so she has a whole book called 90 seconds to a life you love And she has taught me more about dealing with uncomfortable feelings than any other person that I can think of, because that is what drives so many poor decisions. And and I'm certainly guilty of them. I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means, but I do agree with you that not dealing with your stuff impacts your ability to make changes in your personal life, whether it's more sleep, prioritizing stress management, getting yourself to the gym, making better food choices, etc., I just think that we as a culture probably don't emphasize that enough. Like we just think it, oh, it should just be pure willpower. Pure willpower is going to get you through all these things. And that's really not the case. I find that it could be something as simple as like limiting beliefs or, you know, having these really profoundly uncomfortable feelings that they're not able to process. It could be something their parents said to them unknowingly years ago that is like holding them back from being able to, you know, make those shifts. And I, and I, the other thing that I would say is without question, you know, our relationships with ourself really stem from our childhood. And so if you had parents that couldn't talk about uncomfortable feelings or they themselves weren't able to, you know, properly, uh, you know, kind of navigate expressing their own feelings. I mean, that then, you, you just don't learn the modeling of behavior that you need to be able to then go on and, and model, you know, a good relationship with food or a good relationship with physical activity. And this is not a criticism of my parents. I want to be really clear about that, but it's certainly something that I have watched evolve over the many years I've been on this planet, you know, working with patients and clients. And when you really start asking them what's at the root for why you feel stuck it's pretty commonly identified that it's these, you know, these feelings of worth and feelings that they kind of created from you know their upbringings that have mitigated a lot of the choices that they've made as you know teens and young adults. Do
1: you think? Do you feel that people would benefit more at times than from starting something, and then when they start to fall or face some adversity or not see results, that will lead to them developing some awareness around what's what's holding them back.
0: You hope. I mean, I think I think a lot of people cruise at 30,000 feet and they're not really capable. I, I don't want to say it pejoratively, but I don't think the average person really understands what mitigates their behavior. I think a lot of people just kind of move through their lives, you know, one foot in front of the other and it's just been my personal and professional experience that a lot of people just are never in touch with their feelings. Like they just don't, they don't, they don't even acknowledge how they feel in their body, let alone what their personal feelings are. And I say this, you know, I've worked with thousands and thousands of patients and I've had the opportunity to meet hundreds of thousands of people over the years. And, and that has been a pretty consistent theme. Like when someone really stands out as this is a very evolved individual, this is someone who's very emotionally regulated, this is someone who's done the internal work, that's not easy to do that stuff. And I I don't think the average person is necessarily in that same state of mind and state of place in their lives to be able to do that. Like certainly in talking to you, having you on my podcast, it is clear to me that you have had a trajectory you know working with mentors investing in yourself doing the internal work same thing for myself but that has been a concerted effort i jokingly say i'm like the black sheep of my family because i speak the truth sometimes not the truth that people want to hear but you know to me it's like part of my part of my process part of why i am where i am is because i'm constantly doing the work even if it's tough to do i'm still doing it
1: so getting back to so getting back to this person let's just say that, that there's that somebody's listening to this like all right i get it i'm going to therapy or i feel like i have a great relationship with myself and that i want to improve my health and i want to live longer i want i want to slow down aging i want to lose body fat whatever their goal is and i mean as it pertains to just their overall health and wellness. Like what would be the three things that you make that you would say that they should make sure they do on a weekly basis?
0: Yeah, I would say prioritize sleep because it's so foundational to our health. We know that it sets us up for, you know, stable blood glucose. It sets us up for um, not having uh, cravings throughout the day. It uh, is certainly instrumental in every biological processes. I would say sleep is number one. I would say, Number two would be finding an opportunity to move your body on a daily basis. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you're in the gym, but it could be that you're taking a walk in the morning with your loved ones or you're walking your pets, you know, just being physically active because we are designed as human beings to be physically active. And then number three would probably be, you know, whether it's eat more protein or eat less often, I find that easily 90% of the individuals that I work with are eating too frequently, eating too much, and grossly under eating their protein. So if you look at the statistics and look at the research, most individuals eat too many carbohydrates and not the unprocessed variety. They eat too much of the wrong types of fats like the seed oils. And then they're really under eating protein. And certainly the the plant-based narrative has not done us any favors in terms of Um, you know, convincing people they feel guilty. They're always feeling guilty about eating animal-based protein. I would say that. And then I'd probably sneak in a fourth. And I would say that doing that internal work, whether it's, you know, taking five minutes to express gratitude, uh, which really is an active process. It is not just throwing a couple of things down on a piece of paper, you know, doing things to invest in mindset, whether it's reading a book, listening to a podcast, Uh, you know, meditation, grounding work, connection to nature, the older I get, the more I realize that that quieting of the autonomic nervous system, which is, you know, sympathetic nervous system is I'm being chased by a rabid animal. Parasympathetic is digestion, it's rest, it's relaxation. Most of us are chronically overactivated, and we're not doing enough to kind of, um, you know, calm the, the autonomic nervous system. And so, When I start looking at a lot of the chronic health issues that I see, a lot of it has to do with the things I talked about, but also this chronic, unrelenting to-do list. You know, how many people struggle to disconnect and just take time for themselves and even taking a nap. Like we just got back from vacation. I napped every day. It was wonderful. But how many times would I do that on a normal day? Probably not all that often. So those are the things that I think are really at the core of metabolic health, and certainly health and wellness that are of greatest benefit. And if people are doing those things, they can then move on to more advanced strategies much more comfortably.
1: So getting into the more advanced strategies, you know, you touched on some of the non-negotiables that you think people should do on a weekly basis if they're just trying to improve their overall health, well-being, what have you. We've talked about some of the biggest mistakes people make when they get into intermittent fasting, but let's just say somebody's listening to this they're like, all right. Doug, Cynthia, I got this, I'm working out, I'm sleeping, managing my stress, I'm getting enough protein, I'm doing all the things, if I want to like take it up a notch, um, where do I start? Like, what do you think are the, f- the first couple steps that somebody can take to make sure that they're going to fast in a way that's not going to, you know, jeopardize areas of their health, but it's actually going to optimize it?
0: Yeah, I think that one of the most important things that I haven't discussed yet is how that feeding window, the time in which you are eating two meals, three meals, I'm not an advocate of OMAD or one meal a day because I think that people end up chronically under eating protein, but it's really helping people understand that you want that feeding window to be large enough. So that you can get in two good sized boluses of protein and and i'm a proponent of you know dr Doniel Lehman and dr gabrielle lyon's work where we're really talking about one gram per pound of ideal body weight and we know we need at least 30 grams of protein in a meal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and as we start getting older we actually need more protein not less which is a common misnomer or misunderstanding that people Think, oh, you know, my teenagers can have 10 or 15 grams of protein. It does the same as me having 40. That's just much like many things in life. So helping people understand you want to make sure you're getting at least 30 grams of protein, especially in that first meal of the day, because we know it helps with blood sugar regulation, helps with satiety. And that's key. Like that is very important to discourage cravings and hyperphagia, which is that fancy way of describing it. So number one, have a wide enough feeding window so you can get enough protein in. Number two, I would say the other thing that's really important is hydration and electrolytes. And and for most individuals, when they are navigating a intermittent fasting lifestyle, they are probably to some degree, if they're trying to change body composition or lose weight, they are probably restricting some degree of carbohydrate intake. And when you do that, physiologically in the body... Um, As your body is depleting glycogen stores, which is stored sugar, you will actually lose some degree of electrolytes in your urine, generally potassium, sodium, chloride, etc. And that's why electrolyte repletion becomes a very important component. This doesn't have to be complicated. You can add them to your water. Um, I usually say, you know, I'm a proponent of a clean fast. So you know, unflavored electrolytes in a fasted state, you can have some Stevia products like things like Element or Redmond's or two clean companies that you want to consume in a in a, fa- in a fed state. And then the other thing that I think is so important is this is where if you've already dialed in on nutrition and, and you're exercising and hopefully your strength training, helping people understand this is when targeted supplementation, I think, can be very effective. And I like things like creatine monohydrate which can be helpful for not only strength gains in the gym, but also there's solid research now looking at bone health as well as brain health. So individuals, if you're dealing with jet lag, if you have a history of traumatic brain injury, um, if you are dealing with sleep deprivation, creatine monohydrate has a place to be able to help, help you from a muscle perspective, but also brain and bone health. And so this is where I'll start to get, and I'm very, um, I think because of my, my pharmaceutical background and how many years I was writing prescriptions for me, I use targeted supplementation because I think it can be a big differentiator when we are looking at navigating an intermittent fasting lifestyle. So probably that, um, and just being conscientious about the nutrition piece, because one thing and one message that I think is really important, most individuals focus on supplements first and nutrition last, And it should be the reverse. We focus on really high quality nutrition and then supplements are added only if they're needed. I think we are a culture that loves supplementation and I get it, it's fun. Sometimes it can be really new and novel, but I also think it's just as important that we be very, very targeted about how we utilize supplementation and making sure we're using the highest quality products that we have access
1: to. What do you think's uh, a healthy feeding window for most people?
0: I think probably eight hours. Uh, you know, certainly there, there is a place for shorter, tighter feeding windows, but eight hours is typically enough time for most individuals to get two solid meals. Like if you're a teenager, now my teenagers eat like they have massive feeding windows. Um, they would probably be able to eat three good sized meals in an eight hour window, but they're still kind of growing and maturing. But most adults, I would say eight hours. I sometimes have 10 hour feeding windows. It depends on the day and how much protein I'm trying to get in. Certainly on days that I lift, I'm a little bit more liberal and discriminant about my feeding windows and and how much protein I'm getting in my diet.
1: In the context of females, um, I've heard fasting for extended periods of time can be detrimental to, to hormones. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think it depends on the age and the stage. So If you are a 28-year-old female that is very lean and when I say very lean, like you're really thin, uh, intermittent fasting is probably not something I would recommend. And if you were doing it, if you wanted to have a 12-hour feeding window, I think that's completely fine. I sometimes call that, you know, that gives you 12 hours of digestive rest along with a wide feeding window. But I, I get concerned when I see young women, because even if you're choosing at that point in your life to not have children, your body is ex- is exquisitely attuned to the intake of nutrients. And so If your body perceives that you are starving it, uh, you could lose your menstrual cycle. And I tell everyone, I think about a woman's menstrual cycle as seriously as I think about blood pressure and pulse and temperature. It is a vital sign. It is a sign of our health. And so that is very different than a 28-year-old who's morbidly obese, has polycystic ovarian syndrome and insulin resistance. They would likely benefit from a degree of fasting around their menstrual cycle. So there's a time in our menstrual cycle when we can capitalize on... Intermittent fasting is a strategy, and there's a time as we get closer to when our menstrual cycle starts that we want to back off. So without over explaining things, you know, we have the follicular phase when estrogen predominates, and this is the time in our menstrual cycle when most women can get away with more intense exercise. They can get away with, um, you know, more fasting. They can get away with a little bit of a tighter feeding window versus when progesterone predominates as they get closer to their menstrual cycle starting now, the two other differentiators are perimenopause, which is the five to 10 years preceding menopause and then menopause. And it's important to kind of identify like average age of menopause in the United States is 51. So you do the math, you know, kind of figure out like where women are kind of navigating. I have plenty of very thin women that are going into menopause in their late 40s, but helping women understand that we become less stress resilient at this stage in our lives meaning we have to be very attuned to managing our stress. We need to get that sleep. We need to not overexercise. And one of the common mistakes that I see is that women start overexercising in response to the fact they're no longer getting the results they used to get. So if they used to do a Ironman or a half marathon, all of a sudden they're pushing themselves even harder. They're running 10 miles a day. They're lifting weights five days a week. They're never giving themselves a rest day. So helping women understand that we still have to kind of be mindful of where we are in our cycle up until menopause, but also understanding like you need to get the rest. You need to manage your stress. You've got to do the anti-inflammatory nutrition. Maybe what you got away with in your 20s and 30s, you can't get away with in your 40s and 50s. I certainly don't eat the way I did in my 20s and 30s anymore. They're just foods that don't agree with me anymore. As an example, alcohol is something that I never had a problem with, but anytime I I was drinking, you know, five or six years ago, I would, it would wreck my sleep. I would get hot flashes. And for everyone who knows me knows how serious I'm about my sleep quality. So I eliminated alcohol a few years ago and I don't get hot flashes. So for me, for each one of us, it's determining what is working for us and what is not working for us. The other thing that I think is really important helping women understand like as our bodies are changing and going through reverse puberty this is where strength training becomes so important you're not doing the chronic cardio leaning into strength training along with fasting around your cycle can be very effective but again i go back to that first comment i made about the over fasting the undernourishment, the over exercising women have to be careful navigating these years because it can in many ways be a total mind screw if you have always been thin and healthy. And then you start getting into your 40s and you become weight loss resistant. And your physician says to you, because I heard this myself, Cynthia, you're like 42 years old. This is just the way things are. And I, I remember thinking like, that's just not something I'm going to accept. So I think for a lot of individuals, it's helping them understand we've got to find the reframe. We can fast successfully in perimenopause and menopause and menopause is the easiest because you're not dealing with a menstrual cycle and provided that you're sleeping and you're, you know, strength training and you're managing your stress, it can be a much easier time to enter in fast.
1: How does somebody know that they're fasting wrong? How does somebody know that like whatever they're doing just isn't working? What are some of the signs?
0: Yeah, I would say number one is all of a sudden your sleep goes south. Like people will say. I was doing great until I started intermittent fasting. And now I wake up in the middle of the night, three times a night and I'm hungry and I don't know what's going on. So that's number one. Um, Number two is changes in your menstrual cycle. This could happen in the first one or two cycles that you're doing intermittent fasting, but your cycle shouldn't go away. You know, this is something called amenorrhea. Um, As I mentioned before, our menstrual cycles are a sign of our health. And so if our menstrual cycles go away, that's not a good indicator. I would say being chronically fatigued, if you're really, really tired and that's, and you have no energy, that can certainly be a sign. Um, I would say that for a lot of people, if they are having constant cravings, now that could be emotional eating, that could be some degree of emotional needs that aren't being met. And, you know, we've already kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, dealing with uncomfortable feelings for some people, restricting food can lead to binges. It can lead to overeating. And I help people understand, like, sometimes it's that you're fasting too long. It could be that you're undernourishing your body. And we have something called the amygdala in our brain. It's kind of our reptilian brain. It can override our prefrontal cortex. We can't use our executive thinking skills. And then we're eating everything because our body is thinking we're not going to get any food. So we need to eat as much as possible as quickly as possible. Those are typically the more common things that I see or here. And the other one that I would say is people will sometimes just say to me, like, I just don't feel good. They don't have a specific, like maybe they're nauseous. Uh, you know, maybe they, they, they feel achy. I mean, that could be part of detoxifying, especially if they're changing their nutritional, uh, their nutritional intake that could have a huge play with all of this. But I think a lot of it comes down to bio-individuality and really being honest with yourself. Not everyone does well with intermittent fasting. What I do find is nearly everyone, irrespective of gender, does fine with 12 hours of digestive rest. And so sometimes that's the happy medium. That's what we look at. And we just say, I'm going to have 12 hours of digestive rest. I'm going to have a wider feeding window. I'm not going to call it intermittent fasting, but 12 hours is going to allow me to have three meals. I'm going to have plenty of energy in between. I feel good. I sleep well. I get my menstrual cycle. I'm not grumpy. And so that's, those are typically the more common things I will see that are for me are red flags.
1: And so it's, it's up to the person to become aware of these things and understand that if something is off, that it's time for them to kind of look at what they're doing and say, okay, like what's the common denominator here? Is it stress? Is it nutrition? Is it, um, I'm not working out enough or is it the fact that just fasting, in the, or is it, or is it the fact that fasting just isn't for me and I should you know, try to pursue some other eating schedule or some other plan that's more aligned with how my body, um, can handle things. I've often also heard that people will say that the reason I want to fast is because when I'm not eating, I'm just eating away at body fat. Um, do you think there's truth to that?
0: Well, I mean, as you become fat adapted, so we want our bodies to be able to use stored energy as a fuel source, whether it's carbohydrates or it's fat. And so I sometimes will say to people when they'll say to me, oh, I eat ketogenic and I eat a stick of butter and five avocados a day. I'm like, I would much rather that my body utilize stored fat as a fuel source in the absence of other options than be eating copious amounts of fat which then tell my body that it's not going to effectively tap into those stored fats. So I I do think when we talk about fat adaptation, and this is the way our bodies are designed to thrive. They are designed to be able to use either carbohydrates or stored glycogen, fatty acids, or even ketones as a fuel source. That is how they are designed to thrive. But in our modern day hedonistic culture, most people are literally just using carbohydrates as a primary fuel source. And this is what contributes to weight loss resistance and being hangry and getting grumpy in between meals and just feeling like you just don't have sustainable energy. And so I I think on a lot of different levels, many people have existed in this inefficient metabolic flux for such a long amount of time that they just don't realize that their normal is not normal. That is not optimized health. That is not optimized metabolic health and certainly not setting you up for success long-term.
1: So with all that said, Do you think that people can get the same benefits of fasting if they just restrict their calories? Somebody's eating 2000 calories and they're eating from like, I don't know, 9am to 5pm. And if somebody else is eating 2000 calories and they're eating from 7am to 7pm, do you think that those two people will see the exact same weight loss and health benefits?
0: Well, it's interesting if you look at the research, if you look at like head-to-head, looking at just pure caloric restriction versus time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting, the intermittent fasting folks, because they have a more compressed feeding window, are going to see more changes in body composition and weight loss than the individuals that have a wider feeding window. I think a lot of it is also highly dependent on what we're eating, how physically active are you, what's your sleep schedule like, how do you manage your stress, pretty consistently when I look at the research and I was just doing some YouTube content around this, uh, last night. So it's, I'm pretty familiarized with it. It's helping people understand that if we do calories matter, yes, but hormones matter more. So when I'm talking to individuals about looking at pure caloric restriction versus keeping your insulin levels low so that your body can go in and utilize stored fat, that is very different. And I know there are models out there where, you know, they use the term CECO, calories and calories out. And, you know, Robert Lustig and Jason Fung and Ben Bickman, I mean, they all, all these metabolic health experts will talk about the fact, yes, calories matter, but it's more than that. It is far more sophisticated than that. And any woman that's listening knows it is not just calories and calories out because hormones govern every single process in our body. And any woman that's north of 35 or 40 knows that it is far more complicated than just counting calories. So if you look at the research, the individuals doing time-restricted eating that have a more compressed like eight-hour feeding window will very likely get different results than individuals that have a 12-hour feeding window. And think about it this way. There's a lot that goes into weight loss resistance because that's really what the hot topic is for so many individuals at this stage of life. It's like, Why am I weight loss resistant? Why is this happening? And I could give you 10 different reasons why someone is weight loss resistant, but almost always when people just eat ad libitum. So if they eat just as they want to, they don't realize it doesn't register for them how much food they're eating, the quantity of food they're eating, how frequently they're eating. So I think when individuals have a compressed feeding window and they know that there's just two opportunities or two and a half opportunities to eat in that time frame, they're generally making much more conscientious choices.
1: So if, if, if one person, the research you were saying, so if one person eats in a smaller feeding window, and they're eating the same amount of calories as somebody else in the different feeding window with like the same types of foods that the person with the smaller eating window loses more weight.
0: Well, I mean, it's dependent on a lot of different things. Cause you're, you're giving me like, you know, a, a kind of extraneous, uh, option. And, and I think that for a lot of individuals and they are out there and we've talked about some of these individuals off air. There are people who are just solely focused on calories and it's is—it's not the calories don't matter. It's that when we're talking about compressing a feeding window, there are things that are going on physiologically when you have 16 hours out of the day when you're not eating. 16 hours out of the day where you're going to have changes in fluctuating insulin levels. We know when insulin levels are low. We're going to have the ability to tap into fat stores, to utilize for energy. There's a lot more to it than that. But I know that the individuals that are solely focused on calories, this is something that they get very upset about. But I always say, I'm not saying calories are irrelevant. I'm just saying that if you understand the physiology of what's going on in the body in an unfed state for a longer period of time, and obviously at 16 hours, you're not getting uh, autophagy, which is this upregulation of getting rid of disease and disordered cells, but kind of looking at it, is there are a lot of benefits, reductions in inflammation, things like that. There's a whole lot more to intermittent fasting than what we're talking about in this context.
1: And I definitely do think that food quality definitely matters. I mean, I don't think it's just calories. I do think that, and this is just my own personal experience, but people, and I, I mean, I've struggled with this personally in that I think that I thought that because I was eating healthy food, because I was eating chicken and broccoli and rice and all this stuff that was like a lot healthier than what I was used to eating, that I could just eat it as much as I want and I wouldn't gain any body fat. Yeah. And then I noticed that I was wrong, and that I still had to like pay attention to how much I ate. And the same with fat. I mean, the same with fasting, where. I did do intermittent fasting. I did the one meal a day. I mean, I've done it all with it. And I've noticed that I thought because I was fasting that I could eat more and I could still lose weight. And what I've, I guess, personally found is that no matter what, if my goal was weight loss or if my goal was fat loss, I need to pay attention to how much I'm eating. Do do I need to measure everything every single day? No. Do I need to track everything every single day? No. I think if you do it for a period of time, you can kind of figure out like, you kind of know what you're doing a little bit. But I do think that, it is important to understand that at least from my understanding that like fasting alone and compressing your your eating window doesn't doesn't eliminate the fact that you have to pay attention to how much food you're eating.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of people think it gives them a license to eat whatever they want. And, and I'm, I'm here to say as sad as this fact is, um, there are just certain foods I can't eat anymore, and I'm okay with that. I've I've like gone to a point of acceptance, but I find for a lot of women in particular, when I talk to them about the most inflammatory foods, like let's do, let's do a a, a Whole 30 for a month just to help you build awareness around some of these foods. There are a lot of fun foods. Like a lot of people don't want to give up gluten, they don't want to give up dairy, they like their ice cream, they like their alcohol, they like their sugar. And what I find without question is if if they give me four to six weeks of just eliminating the most inflammatory foods for a period of time, as they start reintroducing them, they are stunned at how much their symptoms kind of come back. They're like, oh, I didn't realize this joint pain wasn't really joint pain. It's that there's so much inflammation when I consume X, Y, and Z that these are foods that I I genuinely need to be more conscientious about.
1: And so getting back to like your own health and your transformation. You've obviously been somebody that's constantly worked on yourself and done a lot of inner work and, um, just tried to, um, be on this journey to be evolved as a, as a human being What's something in the last year that you've worked on for yourself that has led to uh, a lot of personal growth for you.
0: Um, I think for me, it's just doing more things that are just joyful. Like as an example, I'm, I have a tendency to always be like learning. So I would like be listening to a book on Audible and I've got like five books I'm reading for podcast guests. And I, you know, I, I've been integrating finding things that are just fun or frivolous because I needed more of that. So I, I would be too embarrassed to tell you which podcast I've been listening to just for fun and frivolity vi- for over the last couple of weeks. Or just even listening to an autobiography because I needed that that mental break, and so I think for me that's been part of it that I've just been doing things for pure fun as opposed to purpose. Like, oh, I felt like I always had to be reading a book that was stimulating my brain. No, I don't. Um, you know, taking a nap when I need it. Um, thankfully, that's not very often. But you know, when I'm on vacation, I will certainly embrace that. But I think it's also the prioritization of doing things that really bring me joy, and in my world with my family, it's taking vacations. And so I've been really deliberate about carving that time out and going away on vacation and disconnecting from work. And so those are the things that I think have made, have been hugely instrumental in the success that I've had over the past year, because it's allowed me to just disconnect. Like as an example, it's Friday afternoon. Um, at five o'clock, I'm totally disconnecting. I'm not looking at work until probably Sunday morning because I've kind of built in these buffer days and you and I both know as entrepreneurs, we could easily work 24 seven. And so I've, I've started creating more boundaries about even with my team, like saying to them, like, I don't expect you to work seven days a week. Um, If I send you a text message and need help with something, I hope that you, (laughs) I hope that you won't see it as a, a, an interruption in your weekend, but helping all of us understand how important it is to disconnect and just do things that provide joy in our lives.
1: So, so important. Um to I mean it's so important to like disconnect in in general and just take some time to practice the pause and try to focus on like some of the wins for your week, some of the things you could have done better, or just to like frankly like you said completely just unplug and just give your nervous system and your brain and your body that rest that it it truly deserves,
0: yeah, I think it's important, and unfortunately, I had a mom who was incredibly successful uh and she retired five years ago. And I swear, I think it took her five years to relax. And she's still not relaxed because she doesn't feel like she can ever just not do anything. Like even when she comes to my house, we joke about the fact we have to have projects ready for her because she can't just sit down and like watch a movie. She has to be moving and doing all the time. And so I I try to remind myself that I don't want to end up in that position where I can't disconnect. Now I finally she's now gardening. I mean I've she's like now become a master gardener in her retirement years, but it's still like she can't just sit and be still. And I acknowledge that that in and of itself can be a trauma response for a lot of individuals, but helping people understand that there's no shame in in taking a break and taking a rest and doing something that just brings you joy that doesn't have like a specific purpose. Obviously, you don't want that to be 90% of what you do, but it can help you kind of disconnect and decompress and de-stress.
1: For you personally, like what are some of the top foods that you eat every day to to coincide with your overall health and longevity goals?
0: Yeah, I would say um, these are easy. Green tea, uh, bison or beef, because I eat a lot of meat, Uh, eggs, bacon, avocados. Uh, and I really genuinely like vegetables. I think sometimes people are like surprised to hear that, but like, I love broccolini. I love cruciferous vegetables. I like Brussels sprouts. I like asparagus. I like salad. Uh, but those are like consistent things. And uh, you probably won't be surprised to know this. I am a dark chocolate aficionado. So I have a little bit of dark chocolate every day and I have zero guilt because the rest of my nutrition is so dialed in. And really dark chocolate, if it's high quality dark chocolate, can really be a superfood if you can temper your consumption. Like I'm not talking about sitting down and eating a bar of dark chocolate. It's just a piece or two is very satisfying and, um, you know, full of flavonoids and, and things that have a lot of therapeutic benefit, but those are consistent things I consume every day.
1: And what is your current, uh, workout routine look like?
0: Yeah. Uh, so two to three days a week of strength training, uh, I moved to a new city about two and a half years ago and I haven't found a gym that I love, but we are building a home gym right now, which I'm super excited about. Uh, I also like to do quite a bit of zone two training. And, you know, we live in a really hilly part of our state. So my dogs get anywhere from two to three miles a day of walking on hills. So my hamstrings always get a workout. And then I really like doing Pilates. And I tell people I don't do Pilates for strength training. I do it for posterior chain work. I do it for flexibility. I do it for core work. And as we get older, it's really important in terms of like proprioception, our bodies understanding where we are in time and space. So sometimes, um, you know, I'm on a reformer and I've got, you know, I've got one leg up and one arm up. And I mean, there's so much balancing that's going on. It's really good mentally. Uh, and I, I laugh because I used to think of Pilates as being kind of frivolous and I've come to realize it's humbling. It's actually hard because uh, I have a couple really great instructors But it's something I try to do twice a week. It's just a way for me to not only manipulate my body in time and space, but I don't have to think. I mean, I do have to think, but I don't have to think a lot. Like, I mean, I'm following someone else's instruction and I don't have to be thinking like, what's the next machine I want to use or what's the next weight I want to use. I just kind of go through the motions, but I'm very present when I'm exercising. Like I did Pilates this morning. It was my first time back in about a week and a half and it felt really good.
1: What do you think that, I mean, I know you work with a lot of women, um, as we've kind of touched on throughout the conversation, like, what do you think is the most common thing that they miss that that gets in their way? Like when they're trying to transform their health, when they're trying to lose body fat, like what typically is something that's a common thing that you see over and over again?
0: Oh, it's all mindset. I think so much of it is, um, their inner dialogue, it is whatever they're saying to me outwardly, they're saying a hundred percent tougher, harder, more deprecating dialogue inside their head. So it, a lot of it's helping them find a reframe. Like they'll say, Oh, I'm bad because I ate X. I was like, no, you're not bad. I mean, like, let's find the reframe. So I, I feel like a lot of it is mindset. I feel like a lot of women have had very maladaptive relationships with food. They may not have had a raging eating disorder. Maybe they didn't have anorexia or binge eating or food addiction, Uh, but they just have an unhealthy dialogue internally around their relationship with food or their bodies, or they're really disconnected from their bodies. Like I'll say to people, um, I want you to really be intuitive. Like, I want you to, like, did you not sleep well? If you didn't sleep well, this is not the day to do a long fast. This is not the day to do a lot of intense exercise. This is not the day to make a a major life decision and, and helping them understand like part of the process of, of quite frankly, emotional maturity is just getting really granular and honest with yourself about like what's going on internally. Like the day I got four hours of sleep coming back from a trip, I was not doing cryotherapy. I was not doing HIIT. I was not going to the gym to do a personal best. I was not doing, you know, 20 hours of intermittent fasting. And so helping them understand, like, these are the things we need to be conscientious about in terms of our internal dialogue. And so I I think a lot of it's the mindset. That's why I talk a lot about, you know, working on mindset, reading books that influence mindset, being conscientious about... Uh, you know, that internal dialogue, which I, I think is consistently a problem for probably 90% of women, they just don't realize it. It's not until someone mirrors their behavior that they'll say, Hey, wait a minute, let's find a reframe, like, let's find a way to talk about our feelings, let's find a way to talk about our bodies, let's talk about our relationship with food. And then, you know, it allows them to have a degree of, um, Grace, you know, I, I say to everyone like give yourself grace, like you know, stop you know if if you're feeling obsessive about the scale, then maybe we go to checking our weight once a week like maybe every day is setting you is setting you up for this roller coaster of emotions that I don't think is particularly healthy, and I don't think is serving you now, I know I have colleagues that weigh themselves daily and but I think that they have a different relationship with the scale, but for women that live and die by that number, and then they forget that, oh, yesterday I ate a bunch of like carbohydrate laden foods and I put on five pounds. It's not five pounds of fat, it's water weight. And so those are the kinds of things that I think a lot of a lot of people are not necessarily aware of.
1: Let's just say somebody sends you an email or a text, you know, like, hey, Cynthia, I ate like crap yesterday. I got on the scale and I do feel heavier. Like what's the, what's the in-depth message to them?
0: Oh gosh. I'm like, all right, today is a new day. Today, you're going to hydrate. Today, you're going to sweat a little bit. Uh, you're going to eat some green leafy vegetables. You are um, not going to punish yourself by going out and doing 10 miles of running and in the you know summer, humid heat. Uh, this is not the day where you're going to just fast longer to self-flagellate. It's just like the understanding that all of us are human beings. And sometimes we make great decisions and sometimes we don't. And understanding that giving yourself grace is the first and most important step in this journey. Because if you can give yourself grace, you can find that reframe and understand that so much of our choices are really a reflection of what else is going on. Like, did you make bad decisions? Did you make bad nutritional choices because you hadn't slept because you were stressed because you were uncomfortable about something that's coming up? Maybe you don't like seeing your family and you're going to see your family in two weeks or Thanksgiving. And that's why you're making bad choices. So helping people get some degree of reflection as to like what contributed, not in a shameful way, but just in a building of self-awareness.
1: What is a common limiting belief you've, you personally have for yourself that you deal with on a daily or weekly basis?
0: Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Uh, for full transparency, I think because I am that reformed people pleaser, it's, always, it, it, it's that constant Mindset of understanding that it isn't important that I have to please others. I have to first and foremost, please myself. So I think it comes down to, you know, just that gentle reminder of pleasing others is not the way to peace. You know, helping myself understand that I used to be that person that wanted, you know, I, I wanted to be popular and I was popular and I was in a particular crowd in high school and college. And then it just gets stupid, Um, You just realize that it's really not important about popularity. So I think being on social media and having a platform, it's the acknowledgement. Like I try to just stay focused on what needs to happen in my business and stay less focused on what other people are doing. And and I think this is normal. Like I remind myself it's normal. And we talked to my team and I talk about this. You know, we, we want to, we want to reflect on what others are doing. If it pops up and just kind of say, huh, that's great. I'm excited for them. You know, really living in a mindset of abundance and not living in a mindset of scarcity because the former is healthy and the, the latter is not.
1: Where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more about your journey? They want to buy your book. They want to listen to the podcast. Where's the best place for that?
0: Yeah, probably best to start on my website. So www.cynthiatherlo.com. You can get access to all my social media channels. I remind everyone I'm very active on Instagram. We are growing YouTube. So you definitely want to check that out. My podcast is Everyday Wellness. And we just recorded a podcast together that will be out in 2024. And then, you know, obviously you have access to the book on the website as well. Before forewarned, if you see me on Twitter, I can be a little snarky. Sometimes I get myself into trouble. And then we have a private free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name that we have men and women in, That it is a drama-free zone where I do personally answer questions. It's not my team answering questions, and it's a great way to learn more about me and my philosophies.
1: Awesome, Cynthia. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll be sure to include the links to your stuff in the show notes. Thanks again. I think the audience is really gonna enjoy this one.
0: Absolutely, thanks for having me.
1: You got it.